Welcome to Concord Matters, a show seeking for concord, agreement in Christian confession. Concord mattered to Jesus and Paul, and so it does to us also. Spend these next 60 minutes as we talk matters of Concord. Concord Matters, a program produced by the Christ-Centered Leader in Confessional Broadcasting, Worldwide KFUO, online at kfuo.org. And welcome to Concord Matters, the show where we seek to be of one mind, that is the mind of Christ, and to do that, a couple of Christ-confessing Concordians confer with the Book of Concord to conform what we believe, teach, and confess according to Scripture in our Lutheran Confession of the Faith. On today's show, we are continuing our series, The Catechized Life, and today continuing our conversation, which we began last week, and how the worship of Christians in its customs and practice teach the faith. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Smith, pastor of the Evangelical Lutheran Dual Parish of Emmanuel West Point and St. Paul's Wine Hill in Southern Illinois. And our catechist for this series is Pastor Mark Bestel. He is pastor of Calvary Lutheran Church in Elgin, Illinois. And Pastor Bestel, we are wrapping up our Catechized Life series here today. So this is the last episode, and lest we run out of time, as we always seem to on this show, I want to thank you so much for serving as our catechist for this. It's been an excellent series. Of course, we'll continue to have you on Concord Matters from time to time, as we have had even before this series. So thank you so much for serving in that role. But getting into our topic here then today, as I said, and I set up there that we're continuing the conversation that we began last week, a reminder that here, as we've wrapped up this series that has been a series of catechesis lessons, these last two episodes here, we're not working directly from anything that is in the text of Luther's small catechism, but yet is very important as connected to the catechism and the faith that we teach of how we see this then play out in our worship life as Christians and in our daily Christian life as well that all of these things permeate that. And so, Pastor Bessel, you began setting that up for us last week and talking about what is worship? What are we talking about there? You gave us a biblical foundation for how we see worship. We began to dig into the liturgy itself a little bit and understand how that echoes back to us, the truth of God's Word. And we left off there talking about how we see this is how our children grow up in anything, let alone especially the Christian faith great episode and seeing the catechism permeate how we view our worship and Christian life there. And so today we're going to wrap that up and wrap up this series and talking there about how the customs and practice of our worship, our liturgy, our divine service, again, kind of using all of those terms there as have been defined for us as well, but how we see that then teach the faith And I want to also give this bit of information for our listeners as well, that today Pastor Bestel is going to be using some images here, and he's going to do his absolute best as we are a podcast radio show to use our words to kind of create that mental image for you. And so I'm sure he'll do quite well with that. But he's also provided then for us some visual images that you can go look at if you want to. Uh, Don't do it while you're driving. If you're listening to this while driving, wait until you're stopped, of course, practice safety there. But uh, you can go to kfuo.org and under Concord Matters with this episode here today, you can get those images there and download them there. So just wanted to let you know that those are available. So 
Pastor Bessel, then go ahead and take us away here as we wrap up this series and with this episode here of, again, seeing how the liturgy itself, how do its customs teach and practice and echo back the faith given to us in Scripture? Glad to, Sean. It's been a great joy to uh, be on the show here with you for these 26, 27 episodes, whatever episode we're on here. But a great joy. Thank you for the opportunity. And what a wonderful topic to conclude on. And how does all of this wrap up in the liturgical life of the Christian? And remember last hour, we said that the liturgy, it should be a more generic term than just meaning Sunday morning, you know, eight o'clock or whatever time, but rather it is the more generic language of the church. We speak liturgish, that everything that we do is about the reality that Christ saves and serves his church, and therefore the church lives out in the joy of that in the daily life of spiritual worship. And so that means that the specific customs that we have and that we hand down and that we echo back to teach and practice this are not just reserved for the quote-unquote liturgy on Sunday morning, but it's also seen in the quote-unquote liturgy of daily devotion. And so we can even start outside Sunday morning. We'll get to Sunday morning in a second. But think of the daily devotions and how they teach us as children of the church. Remember, you never outgrow your baptism. And in many ways, we should always see ourselves as children of the church. And some of us as parents, uh, you with your children, me with my children, we were talking off the air uh, at the end of the show last week, just the devotional life in daily life together that teaches our children and our little ones sit at the table with us and we teach our children. And there are very simple ways to set up customs that practice and hand down and echo the faith that they become so familiarized with that Sunday morning becomes familiar. And just to rattle off what we do in our household, no right or wrong here, really, but we, we use, uh, you know, the opening sentences of matins or, or vespers, O oh Lord, open my lips, my mouth will declare your praise, and go through the opening sentences. Uh, we certainly include then also a reading of the scriptures. We include the chief hymn from the divine service the previous Sunday, which then also reminds them to think about what the previous Sunday service was about. We use the Apostles' Creed. We recite the Ten Commandments. We use the Lord's Prayer. In that prayer, we use the invocation as a reminder of our baptism. Uh, we even sing a portion of the liturgy as our kids have enjoyed learning how to sing in four-part harmony. And so that's, a, that's sort of a new challenge we've taken. And in all of these ways, then, it fosters in the children a love and an appreciation for just sort of the natural daily life comfort level with the liturgy that then becomes very second nature to them on Sunday morning. And by the way, if you've got little ones at home, three, four, five, six, seven years old, and you're doing a 15, 20 minute devotion every day as a family, either at breakfast or at dinner or whatever, if they can learn to sit quiet for 15, 20 minutes, six days a week in family devotions, guess what that means they can also sit quiet for for 15, 20 minutes? The sermon, because most of our sermons are about 15 to 20 minutes long. And so it's a great way of teaching them in customs and practices to sort of have the second nature understanding of a liturgical life. And that's sort of been the point of these last two episodes is that the catechism is in many ways lived out in the oral handing down of the liturgical life that confesses Christ our Savior and therefore lives with faith in God and fervent love toward one another. Boy, that sounds like the layout of the catechism, right? Word, sacrament daily prayers, table of duties, 
So word and sacrament, you use those two things together on Sunday morning, it leads to a life of faith in God, daily prayers, and fervent love toward one another, table of duties. So then that gives us this joy and love for what we get in the customs and practices and ceremonies on Sunday morning. So let's take these next 50 minutes or so to look at those. And as I do, as you mentioned, this is up on the website for anyone who wants it. I love to use the image of the Golden Gate Bridge. I grew up in California. Remember in my youth getting to visit San Francisco, we lived about 45 minutes south of San Francisco. And, you know, unfortunately, the city is uh, sort of a crazy place nowadays, but it's the, the Golden Gate Bridge is always an image of majesty. It's always very beautiful and majestic to look at. And so it's a beautiful understanding of the divine service and this idea of, in a sense, almost journeying through a divine hour with no goal other than dwelling in that divine hour and taking in all the beauty of it and then coming to the other side of it and being fulfilled for the next seven days of daily, in a sense, liturgical life of the Christian. So let's unpack this a little bit. Think of the Golden Gate Bridge and consider that analogy because I think it ties in very well. Think of the different parts of the Golden Gate Bridge and, and what become very immediately noticeable. For anyone who's ever driven over it, you are so eager to get to the Golden Gate Bridge that oftentimes you forget that the first thing you're going to come up to is not the bridge itself, but the toll booth, right? And that toll booth stands there and says, you know what, if you don't pay, you don't have any right to go over the bridge. And my word, it has gotten more and more and more expensive to go over the Golden Gate Bridge. Uh, you know, when we moved away from California 17 or 18 years ago now, it was already expensive. I can't even imagine what it is today. And yet that sort of reminds us of confession and absolution, that when we want to partake of the holy hour that lies ahead, we come to the holy hour and all of a sudden we realize just sort of like a toll booth that we would come up to in sort of this eager anticipation of going over the Golden Gate Bridge, we come up to that toll booth and we go, I got nothing to pay with. I can't go over the gold. I have no right to access the beauty of the Golden Gate Bridge and all of the beauty of what I get to see and experience in it. I have no right to access it because I cannot pay. And that's what we would have to admit to the toll booth keeper. Now, think of this reality that you have in your divine service, you have an under shepherd. And the small catechism even says that the office the keys is that special authority that God has given his church on earth, and that authority is carried out through the office of the holy ministry with the under-shepherd. That under-shepherd then retains the sins of the impenitent and holds them up in front of the impenitent and says, in a sense, you shall not pass until those sins are forgiven. They cannot be paid for by you as a sinner. You have no value by which to say to God, look, look, I can pay for these sins of mine. But rather you come up to this toll booth and you say, I have nothing. What can I render to the Lord? I have nothing to give him except my sins and my iniquities. And therefore, all we can do is cry, be merciful to me. Well, what happens at that, in a sense, divine toll booth, except that the gatekeeper says, by the way, Christ has died for you. Christ has paid for your sins, for your iniquities. He has paid the toll. You may go freely and you may rejoice freely 
in God's gifts. Think of that passage in Isaiah, in the prophet Isaiah, come eat and drink without price. Well, if that isn't the image of this idea of getting to pass through without any fee, without any payment, I would hope that the Christian would never see the giving of their offerings as being the fee to come to the divine service. It might be a, an offering of thanksgiving, but it is not the fee to come to the divine service. We come freely. We eat and drink without price because Christ, the one who has authorized these pastors to, in a sense, be gatekeepers, toll booth workers, whatever you want to call them, he has said, by the way, when someone comes forward who cannot pay, which will be everyone, tell them, no worries, this has been paid for you. You may go and continue and make use of and enjoy this beautiful journey over this divine hour. So when you think of the Golden Gate Bridge and you think of the toll booth, which isn't even located on the bridge, but before the bridge so that anyone can get off if they don't have proper tolls, uh, in the church, there is no exit for those who don't have proper tolls. Christ simply says, I forgive you your sins, right? And the impenitent can still sit there and listen, and their hearts will either be They'll either harden their hearts more to the law and gospel, or their hearts will be melted by the gospel as they sit and listen to these things in the divine hour that comes ahead. Uh, and yet for the penitent, the gatekeeper says, or the under-shepherd says, this has been paid for by Christ, and therefore come enjoy the hour. So then as you do, think about that golden gate and think about the different liturgical elements and how all of this ties together. When you think of the golden gate bridge, and anyone who's ever seen an image of it or driven over it, you know that it is completely defined by these two magnificent towers. And those towers reach down into the depths of the sea, all the danger below you, and they reach high into the heavens, so that there are many days in, in the San Francisco Bay Area in which the clouds come in so low that you can't even see the top of the towers. And so you've got these towers that both reach high into the heavens, and yet they also extend down into the greatest depths of that sea, which is below you. And that sea is a very dangerous sea. If anyone knows the California Bay Area, that ocean water in Northern California is cold water. It's shark-infested water. It is not a safe place to be in those waters. Uh, this is why Alcatraz sits out there, right? And why it was used as a prison on that island, because everyone knew you can't get off Alcatraz alive because of the dangers of the water out there. The bridge carries the people over the dangers of the water in safety. And in many ways, that's a great reminder of what the divine service is all about, that it carries us through the dangers of this world in safety. And it does so with the strength and the power of those two magnificent towers of word and sacrament. And lo and behold, how does the hymnal set up? Page 186, if you're using Divine Service Setting 3, like my congregation does, page 186, the maroon subtitle, The Service of the Word. And then you flip over to page 194, and again, the maroon or red subtitle, The Service of the Sacrament. There are those two great, powerful towers that hold up everything, right? Everything depends upon those two towers. All of the cables, all of the bridge deck, all of that is upheld by the strength of those two towers. Same as the Golden Gate, same as the divine service. Everything depends upon right word and sacrament. 
If you don't have the right preaching of the word and the right distribution of the sacrament, it doesn't matter how beautiful your liturgy is. It can be as beautiful as Eastern Orthodox customs, as people say, oh man, the Eastern Orthodox have great, beautiful liturgy and sometimes are enticed away because of that great, beautiful liturgy. But they got horrible preaching and they don't have pure doctrine and they don't have the right sacraments. And therefore, we say, no, I'm, I'm sorry, that beautiful liturgy is null and void without pure preaching and the right distribution of the sacraments. Again, what good are the two towers if everyone's attention is on the supporting elements, right? And this is what happens in American evangelicalism, is everybody forgets about the two towers. Word and sacrament, that's not the main point anymore. The main point is what's below me, the bridge deck. And this is sort of where I think this illustration is very helpful. So all of the powers of this bridge are dependent upon the two towers. And yet, what is it? How has this bridge been designed to hold up the traveling sojourner? It's designed by these cables that come from the top of the towers. And these cables uphold the bridge deck and keep it stable and safe. And when you're driving, if you've ever been over the Golden Gate Bridge, and I remember this well from my youth, when you're driving over the Golden Gate Bridge, out to your west is just the magnificent beauty of the ocean out there. I mean, just nothing but blue water as far as the eye can see. To your east is the magnificent picture and the magnificent skyline of San Francisco. No matter how crazy the city is, it is still just a beautiful skyline, probably one of the most beautiful skylines in the world. And you see there, you see the Trans Am building, and you see Alcatraz, and you see Coit Tower, and you see all of this beauty in the skyline out there. And yet, because of the cables, guess what happens to your attention? It is removed from what is beside you because as you're driving by and as you're trying to look out to the east or look out to the west, these cables keep whizzing by your face and they distract you from what's out to the east and out to the west and they turn your attention back to the magnificence of what is before you. And what is before you, but there as you're driving toward that first tower, it just ever looming, 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 this massive tower right before you and you just it's just breathtaking how grand it is. And then you go through the first tower and before you is that second tower. And as it looms and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger, just breathtaking how beautiful and grand is that second tower. And the whole reason your eyes are on those two towers is because you can't look out left or right. You can't look out east or west and say, hey, what's going on out there? Because the cables keep whizzing past and saying, hey, you need to put your attention back on the road where it's supposed to be. This is exactly why the liturgy is so beautiful because it keeps our attention focused on word and sacrament. It does not let us sort of wander away into the worldly. It does not let us say, you know what, let's find out what's going on over there uh, in American evangelicalism or over there in Rome and Eastern Orthodoxy. It doesn't let us look east or west. It doesn't let us look out the sides, but it just says, no, here is Christ. Here is his word and his sacrament. Look at these two towers, keep focused on these two towers, everything else is vain, right? Nothing else matters because if not for these two towers, you would fall into the heart of the sea and you would perish. And so here we're going over these horribly dangerous waters on the safety of this bridge made strong by the two towers. And yet those liturgical cables 
keep everything in their proper place, including the bridge deck. Now, this is a great reminder. What would happen if I cut one cable? If I cut one cable, it would probably be okay, right? We Lutherans do this all the time. We cut one cable, for example, during Advent and Lent, and we don't sing the glory in excelsis, and instead maybe we substitute a hymn like O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, or uh, Lamb of God, Pure and Holy for Lent, and we do just fine. But what would happen if you cut two cables, or three cables, or four cables? Pretty soon, the bridge deck would become so unstable that you would not be worried about the strength of the towers, but rather you'd be looking below at your feet and wondering if the bridge deck was going to hold up. This is exactly the problem with American revivalism and American evangelicalism out there, is that they're constantly focused in this contemporary mindset, this contemporary worship of saying, what is immediately below my feet, and will it even support me to get to that grand tower that is ahead? Right? Will it even support me? What is happening right here and now? Because that which is immediate is so unstable and it's so new and novel all the time that I can't even focus on what's ahead because I have to be worried about what's below. This is the joy of being a Lutheran. Or I should say one of the joys of being a Lutheran and of liturgical life. We don't have to worry about the stability of the liturgy. We know it's stable. We've had 2,000 years to ensure its stability, and we know that it's going to point us correctly to word and sacrament. And therefore, we don't have to look at our feet below us. We don't have to worry about the bridge deck below us. We don't even have to worry about the dangerous waters below the bridge deck. We can just enjoy the smooth ride right through the two grand towers so that we can benefit from those two towers and come out the other side. This is why the Golden Gate Bridge is such a beautiful analogy, because it is for you the service of word, the service of sacrament, all preceded by the toll booth of confession and absolution, yielding this successful journey across the bridge. Again, a, a journey that doesn't really even focus on getting to the other side as much as it just enjoys taking part in the trip right, just enjoys the grand beauty and the power and the majesty of those two towers and says, I, I don't even need any beauty out there. Who cares what's out there to my east and out there to my west? It's not even nearly as beautiful and nearly as important and beneficial as those two towers. And that, of course, all then yields on the other side, faith in God, fervent love toward one another. And that is the point then of upholding the bridge deck through these liturgical cables, that we might all benefit from word and sacrament, all be pointed to word and sacrament, and therefore live in that faith in God, fervent love with one another. Now, can those word and sacrament, can those two towers remain standing even without the liturgical cables? Yes, the word and sacrament themselves can, right? But what would happen if that bridge deck fell into the sea? What happened if we cut all the cables, the bridge deck just went plummeting into the ocean, and now all you have left are these two magnificent towers standing out in the sea, but not really accessible to anyone or by anyone? You'd have people standing on both coastlines saying, well, now what do we do with this? And they'd make up their own ways of making use of it. And they'd say, well, you know, 
if we swing a rope out there, we could have a lot of fun swinging back and forth on these two towers. I suppose you could, but that's not why they were designed, right? God didn't give us his word and sacraments so that we could have fun with it or make entertainment out of it. That's not the point of the divine service. The point of the divine service is not to be entertained into a relationship with God. The point of the divine service is to receive the gifts of God the way that he has established. And as we said in the last hour, in the previous episode, he has established these in a heavenly blueprint, the copies of which, or the foreshadowings of which he gave to Moses and the people of old. And he said, but in Christ comes the manifest reality of it. We have that manifest reality of it in those two towers of word and sacrament. And therefore, as God has designed those to be used in a specific way, what a great joy we Lutherans have in the liturgical history that is ours and being able to say, we know that these liturgical cables will get us from one side to the other safely and without distraction so that we can just benefit from word and sacrament. That is absolutely a great image for us. And once again, just a reminder for our listeners, you can go to kfuo.org under Concord Matters in today's episode and see there a download of how you've laid out for us the two towers and the cables and the bridge and all of the elements of the service as they fit in there. Just kind of a helpful visual to go along with what you've described so well for a mental picture for us. So you can check that out there. We're going to Go ahead and take a break here about a minute or so early. And when we come back from break, on the other side, we'll pick up then how this illustration of the Golden Gate Bridge and the bridge and how that plays out in the liturgy then also gives us a sense of our catechized life, the mission of the church, and how that all plays out then as well. So we'll pick that up on the other side of the break with our catechist, Pastor Mark Vestal. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Smith, and you're listening to Concord Matters on KFUO. Greetings, saints of our Lord. This is Brady Finnern of Thy Strong Word. Join us to be renewed and refreshed by God's Word and to be pointed to our resurrected Lord Jesus every weekday from 11 to noon, live or on demand, because God has gifts to give for you. continue and wrap up today our Catechized Life series with our catechist, Pastor Mark Bestel. And Pastor Bestel, in the first segment of today's show, our last show in this series, you gave us that image of the Golden Gate Bridge, which is a great overview image of how we see the liturgy form our life and worship within the church and so forth. And once again, just a reminder for our listeners, you can go to kfuo.org under Concord Matters in today's episode and see there a download of kind of a helpful visual to go along with what you've described for us. So Pastor Bestel, can you go ahead and then transition us here in the second segment as we begin to see that play out in our worship and in our Christian daily life? Uh, You talked about each individual cable help giving support and strength to that deck that carries us across. Can you kind of give us an image then of each of those cables, if you will? 
Yeah, that's an important second part of this because certainly every, everyone can look at those cables and say, oh, that's beautiful. And, and the cables themselves almost give it, you know, if you look at the image of the Golden Gate Bridge, they almost give this emotional, high and emotional though, right? You got the first cable that swings up to the top of the tower and then the cable sort of goes down all the way back down to the bridge and then back up to the tower in the middle and then down from the second tower to the end of the bridge. And people can, in a sense, almost... Not incorrectly, they can sense an emotional movement, even in our liturgy. We Lutherans are not emotionless. And you can sense in the liturgy as an overview, you can sense how the liturgical movement moves us toward that first tower. And there's sort of this crescendo as we get to the hearing of the word. And then again, it sort of descends a little bit in between the word and the beginning of the service of the sacrament. And then at the beginning of the service of the sacrament, it begins to rise again. And there's sort of this crescendo with the words of institution and then back down with the distribution and the final prayers and benediction. So it's not incorrect to see sort of that generic motion of the cables as having sort of that emotional movement if you will. But it is important not to allow our worship to become one that is defined by emotion, as if you could just remove any individual cable, stick it in with another individual cable, and keep that emotional movement. And whatever causes that emotional movement is therefore salutary. That's not true. But rather, we ought to see why do we choose the individual cables, or why has history chosen the individual cables that we have? And these cables we might refer to as the ordinaries. Right. These are the things that we always see every Sunday morning. So when you think of the divine service, there are two elements that are included in the liturgical makeup. The ordinaries are the things you see all the time. And then you've got the propers of the day, meaning that on the you know, second Sunday in Lent, it's always going to be this reading and it's always going to be this intro. And it's going to be these specifics that are specific to this day and the theme of this day. And then you have those ordinaries that are always there. And those things sort of make up the liturgical cables, if you will, that point all attention to the two towers. So let's look at those individually. We've already mentioned that confession absolution is sort of a pre-service in some ways to the service of the word. In fact, you could almost say that every divine service is made up of sort of like three services, the service of confession and absolution, the service of the word, the service of the sacrament, or at least you could say, to keep the analogy of the Golden Gate Bridge, two services with sort of like an entrance rite, a rite of preparation, and there's your confession absolution. So then we get into the individual liturgical elements, and notice how they start, if you will, sort of low, and they sort of build and build and build on each other. So we start with the introit, right, which is simply the Latin word meaning entrance hymn, and that's really where the service of the word starts. Uh, in fact, at Calvary, where I serve, we don't even have an opening hymn. We just go right into the invocation, the confession, absolution, and then you have the entrance. And the entrance, the intro it, the entrance hymn, the intro it, you know, that psalm from, uh, you know, a thousand years before Christ. I mean, it, it's really a beautiful thing to think that the very first liturgical portion is something that reaches back 3,000 years in church history and ties us to the Church of All Ages. And it sort of sets the theme for the day, doesn't it? And yet, and, and I'm going to make a case here that we've been talking all through these last two hours. How is this catechetical? How is it catechetical? How does it echo the things of God? Well, it doesn't just echo, quote unquote, ancient history, but everything here not only gives us the benefit of the life of Christ, 
but it also then reminds us of and teaches us anew and instructs us and points us to the life of Christ. And I'd make the argument that in the divine service and the liturgical layout that we have it, all of these elements work together to actually walk us through the life of Christ and therefore the festival half of the church year every Sunday. Every Sunday, you are marking the various festivals of the church year. You are marking the earthly occasions of Christ's earthly life, and thereby you are meditating upon that work of the Messiah, that earthly work of the Messiah that is now completed, and therefore the benefits of them are yours in the Word and the Sacrament. Okay? So this starts again with the introit, doesn't it? That the introit is that psalm from you know, roughly 3,000 years ago, so that we are joining with the people of old in expectation of the Messiah who is going to come. And we are not doing that just in terms of saying, let's pretend we're in the Old Testament and that one day the Messiah will be born and let's anticipate that coming. Rather, we are saying, just as the people of old awaited the coming of the Messiah, we too are eagerly anticipating that he is going to come right now in this holy hour as he has promised to come and serve his people, right? That's the whole point of the divine service. So already in the intro, you have, I would argue, Advent expectation, because in the season of Advent, what do we focus on? We focus on the prophetic word. We focus on the old covenant awaiting, awaiting, awaiting that long-promised Messiah all the way from the Proto-Evangelium of Genesis 3 all the way until the Messiah comes and is born and is made flesh, right? And so we're already in Advent as soon as the service begins. And then the very next portion of the service is what? It's the Kyrie. The Kyrie is the cry of the beggar. Uh, blind Bartimaeus, Mark chapter 10. Uh, you also have an occasion uh, you know, with the Canaanite woman in Matthew 15. In both cases, the prayer is the same, Lord, have mercy. And this is our petition. And so not only are we praying for, in a sense, Old Testament expectation, but we're also praying in anticipation of the one who comes to have mercy upon us. And so notice how both of these two items are really Advent. Advent expectation and hope for deliverance. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. Right? This is the first two liturgical portions, the first two cables. Now there's a little bit of a crescendo building with the Kyrie. And now you've got the Gloria in excelsis. These are the words of the angels on Christmas Eve, right? That night that Christ is born, that holy night. And hear the words of the angels, glory be to God on high and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. In fact, if there's ever, uh, if anyone uh, listening to this is ever part of the next hymnal committee, I've always wondered why the words are split up, glory be to God on high as the pastor's portion, and the congregation then concludes that phrase, when that whole first line is obviously the song of the angels. And so why split that up? From all of my research, all I can tell is that it was split up because that gave sort of a verbal cue, the pastor's portion gave a verbal cue of which version of the Gloria might be sung, whether it be that one or whether it be the choir singing you know, the rest of it, or whether it would be perhaps Luther's version even as he uh, writes a, a versification of the Gloria in excelsis. But we now know the Gloria in excelsis, and we've had it for so long that we might as well just give that whole first line to the pastor or to the choir as the representative of the angels, and then have the earth respond with the laudamus 
we praise thee, we bless thee, we worship thee. I think that would be a wonderful teaching tool because remember, that's the point of liturgy, to teach and to echo back. And so what joy it would be to echo back that the angels sang out, glory be to God on high and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. And then the earth responds, we praise thee, we bless thee, we worship thee. Having said that, this obviously, again, is Christmas night, right? And just as we rejoice in Christ once becoming incarnate, we are again rejoicing that that incarnation means something for us today. It didn't just mean something in history, but it actually means something today because that incarnate Christ is going to come and serve his people. Here is his holy word and his preaching, the living voice of Jesus. And then here is his very flesh and blood in the sacrament. And so that glory in excelsis certainly reminds us of Christmas night. And then it is followed by what? It's followed by the salutation. That salutation that really, uh, if you were to summarize it, you'd summarize it by the word Emmanuel, right? The Lord is with us or God with us. Well, what is the salutation? The Lord be with you and with thy spirit. And there, that salutation then is, in many ways, again, a reminder of the Christmas season, the reality of the incarnation, right? That's what Christmas is really all about. It's not about, you know, twinkling stars and gift-giving and holly jolly, merry carols. Uh, it's not about that. It's about the fact that our God is now flesh and blood, and that that which once happened in history now benefits us even this Sunday morning as we are singing glory to God in the highest, that we have this comfort that he is with us. In fact, think of how that salutation is used three times in the divine service, here after the glory in excelsis and right before the reading of the word. Again, it's used at the preface, the very first words of the preface for the service of the sacrament. And then the third time, it's used right before the benediction. And so before the three great acts of God, the Word, the sacrament, Him sending us out with His blessing, before those three great acts, before each one, is this salutation between pastor and people that is far more than just a simple greeting, but it's rather an exhortation and comfort to be mindful of the fact that the incarnate Christ is serving his people. So now, follow this train of thought. We're through with the introit and the Kyrie. We're through Advent. With the glory and excelsis and the salutation, we now have worked our way through Christmas. And now we come to the Word and that whole section of the reading of the Word, the proclamation of the Word. Well, that's really epiphany, isn't it? Who is the Christ? And what does the word epiphany mean? It means the one who is made known or making known to the people. And so epiphany is that portion of the reading of the word, the proclamation of the word, the sermon as it expounds upon the word of God to say to the people, here is your Christ, to point right to him and say, here he is. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Here is the living voice of Jesus. And then interestingly, how does, you know, when you think of the Epiphany season, uh, at least in our three-year series, it seems like the second half of it sometimes focuses on the world's response. Those who respond and say, yes, I believe, and those who respond and say, this just can't be. This guy's an imposter. Uh, and in the same way, the liturgy sort of has this response then to the Word in our thanksgiving, 
in our confession of the faith, right? So is the Nicene Creed in your particular congregation, uh, dear listener, is the Nicene Creed before the sermon or is it after the sermon? It historically has been in both places. Uh, and I think there's certainly some merit in saying, hey, let's have it after the sermon that we may confess regarding this whole word, the word read, the word proclaimed. We can confess regarding it all. I believe it. Okay. So whether it's before or after, it's sort of that secondary element of the season of Epiphany that the faithful say, I believe this is the Christ. This is the one who has come for us and for our salvation. And that then elicits then thanksgivings and petitions, doesn't it? So what else do we have in the Epiphany season? As you look at the liturgical elements, well, what comes next? Not only do you have the creed as quote-unquote Earth's response, but you also have the thank offerings, and you also have the prayers and petitions. The cry, again, of, of the one that says, we have faith that God will hear our prayers and will answer them uh, as he knows is best. So all of this is, again, sort of catechetically walking us through the church here, because as we've said, regarding the catechism in daily life, and now as we're seeing in the catechetical nature of the divine service, everything is always about echoing back and walking through that pattern of sound words. And now we see this pattern of the church here building very well. Now, we might also realize we're sort of at this, you know, emotional low point in the divine service, you know, sort of after the thanksgivings, and now getting ready for the service of the sacrament. You're sort of at that emotional low point, maybe illustrated by that middle cable between the two towers that descends all the way down to the bridge deck. And people mistake that for not being important. And they mistake that for thinking that the offering is like a timeout. It's a dead zone. And we just get through it to collect money for bills and things like that. That's a very poor understanding. But rather, even though it's not emotionally a crescendo, it is nevertheless important to confess, yes, my life depends upon this Christ. And therefore, in thanksgiving, I give my thank offerings to the Lord. And in thanksgiving, I call out to him with my praises and my petitions and my prayers. So it might not be, quote unquote, as emotionally high as the pillar of the word and the pillar of the sacrament. And yet what a vital transition in many ways from saying, I have this God who has promised me in his word to care for me. And as he has cared for me in his word and promises, he is now going to care for me in such a mysterious way that the world cannot know it and cannot understand it. And yet this is what's coming now in the service of the sacrament. And so this low point is almost like this quiet meditation that prepares us for this great reality. Now, as we move up through the service of the sacrament and through the individual liturgical elements there, again, it starts to crescendo very quickly. The Lord be with you and with thy spirit. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up unto the Lord. Uh, as I said at an earlier point, you know, this is one of the oldest known parts of the liturgy in the uh, first and second century church, other than the introit as being, uh, you know, Old Testament church. So where the service of the word in very good order sort of captures some of the patterns that were laid out in the synagogue, right? The three readings, the Torah, the histories, the prophets. Now we have the three readings of the Old Testament pointing forward and the epistles pointing backward as the first theological commentary. And then that central and, you know, that highest reading being the gospel reading of the life of Christ as he is now the Messiah come to earth. As that all sort of fulfills that copy of the heavenly blueprint in the Old Testament worship in the synagogue, you now have 
the service of the sacrament that in many ways reminds us of and fulfills the Old Testament sacrificial system. And so, again, just a reminder of that Hebrews 8 passage that sort of generically causes that overview of all of this, right? And says, hey, look, God gave this copy of the heavenly blueprint, and now we're seeing it take on flesh and blood in Christ Jesus and in the way that he serves the church today as he gathers them in the corporate life of the congregation. And so as we get into the service of the sacrament and as we see that crescendo, you know, I suppose somebody could make the argument, I think I even put this on the illustration on the website, that maybe this would sort of be like Lent, though Lent isn't specifically a part of Christ's life. Uh, You know, we sort of mirror Lent to be a mirror image of Christ wandering in the wilderness for the 40 days or the 40 days that he's tempted. So I suppose one could see it like that, Uh, but it is preparatory, right? We lift up our hearts in anticipation. We lift up our hearts in penitential anticipation for the sacrament, for the service of the sacrament. So that lifting up of the hearts is not one of pride, and it's not even one of just sort of euphoric joy, but it's one sort of, if you will, of solemn penitential preparation for what's to come. And so maybe in that sense, we could sort of see this as Lent. And yet, whether or not you liked the idea of seeing that as Lent, it's difficult not to see what comes after it as simply being Holy Week, almost in a sense, revisited in real time, right? Because what comes after the preface and the proper preface is the Sanctus. Not only the words, Holy, Holy, Holy Lord God of Sabaoth, words that are always being sung by the angels of heaven, whether it's in Isaiah's vision or in Revelation in the vision of John or any time between now and the end of this creation, the angels are always in heaven singing the same thing. Holy, holy, holy Lord God of Sabaoth, heaven and earth are full of thy glory. But then notice that phrase that throws us right into Palm Sunday. Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Well, there's Palm Sunday, isn't it? And that should remind all of us, the Messiah, the Lamb of God, is coming right to this tree of sacrifice that he promised to take on for our sakes. But again, we are not just trying to relive ancient history, but rather we are saying just as Christ rode into Jerusalem to die once upon the cross, so now he is riding into this divine service. So that some of the customs that are involved in the Sanctus, for example, when we sing, blessed is he, blessed is he, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, at that point, I actually kneel at the altar as a sign for the congregation that, yes, Christ is coming. Just as we kneel for the incarnation, so we now again kneel for the incarnate Christ who is promising to come right into this divine service, again, in this mysterious sacrament that we cannot, we just cannot fathom and cannot adequately describe with earthly words. So in that Sanctus, then, you have Palm Sunday. And from there, that leads to the Lord's Prayer, which sort of, whether I'm right on this or not, I often think of the Lord's Prayer as sort of the Wednesday of Holy Week. Remember, the the Wednesday of Holy Week, there's nothing recorded in the Scriptures about it. Uh, The Monday of Holy Week, he's cleansing the temple. The Tuesday of Holy Week, he's debating with the scribes and the Pharisees, and he's teaching the people. Wednesday of Holy Week, there's nothing recorded. And we often assume, and I think rightly so, that that Wednesday, he went off to pray. And he went off by himself to simply pray to the Father. And so the Lord's Prayer there, in between the Sanctus and the words of institution, I think can sort of remind us 
of this progression through Holy Week. And then with the words of institution, obviously that's Holy Thursday. And then the peace of the Lord be with you always. Isn't that the exact promise of the new covenant? Isn't that the exact promise of what is being established on Holy Thursday and then sealed on Good Friday? And so, therefore, you have that Pax Domini, the peace of the Lord be with you always, right in between the two elements that scream Holy Thursday and Good Friday, because that peace is what is promised in the new covenant and then sealed by Christ's blood. So you have the uh, words of institution, Holy Thursday, the Pax Domini, that hinge between Holy Thursday's promises and Good Friday's seal of that promise. And then, of course, you have Agnus Dei. Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, have mercy on us. Well, there's Good Friday, isn't it? And in our congregation, we actually hold the host and the chalice high for the duration of the Agnus Day, not because we're worshiping the elements, but because we are saying, here is the Christ who sacrificed himself for us, and you are now about to get to receive him with your own mouth and body and spirit. And therefore, if that is Good Friday, then what is the distribution? except Easter, right? There's Easter Sunday, because we are not distributing the body and blood of a dead Christ, of a Christ who could not overcome the grave, but we are rather distributing the body and blood of the risen Christ. And this is great joy, because again, it is evidence of our completed salvation, right? Good Friday is really, in many ways, the center of our theology, that we needed the Messiah to die for sinners. and. Easter Sunday is in many ways the first evidence of our victory, right? Here is the proof of our victory. Uh, In the same way that Paul says regarding the Lord's Supper that we proclaim Christ's death until he comes, and yet this is a joyous proclamation because it's not one in which we're proclaiming the defeated Christ, but rather we're proclaiming the risen Christ. We're proclaiming the Christ who is the victor, and therefore to the victor go the spoils, and therefore to the victor He gets to share the spoils with whomever he wants, and what joy is ours that the Christ who has overcome the grave shares the spoils, shares the marriage banquet with us. And so the distribution is Easter Sunday and Easter joy. And therefore, as that beautiful Lord's Supper hymn says, at the Lamb's high feast we sing. Right, And one of the verses there even begins something about Easter joy. And what a joyous occasion is ours every time we take the sacrament. Now, after that, the life of Christ on earth still continues a little bit, doesn't it? Uh, We have his ascension, and I think his ascension is actually conveyed to us, or on Christ's ascension, I now build the hope of my ascension. I think that's conveyed to us in the Nunc Dimittis, which, of course, happened historically right after the birth of Christ, as Simeon saw the baby Jesus in the temple. But we're not trying to repeat history. We're rather confessing the byproduct of history, if you will. And the byproduct is that God promises us that we will not depart this earth without Christ, but rather with Christ. And having laid eyes on our salvation, we can then be prepared to ascend where Christ has gone before us, right? I will not leave you as orphans, but I will come again to you that I may take you unto myself, that where I am there you will be also. This is our joy in the Nunc Dimittis, is that Christ has prepared us for our eternity in ways that this world can never comprehend or duplicate or mimic. And therefore, I need nothing else other than this divine service to prepare me to die and leave this earth and look forward to the benefits of the new creation. 
And so we sing this after the sacrament, saying, Christ has done all things well, and he has prepared me sufficiently. I could die right now, and I'd be prepared to ascend into the heavens. And so I really think that the Nunc Dimittis is a wonderful reminder for us of quote-unquote ascension. Even if people would say, well, I don't see Christ's ascension in there, I think we definitely see the Christian's ascension. And then after that, what do we end with? But we end with the benediction. And what is the benediction, I think, in many ways, other than the Holy Spirit sending the church out into the world, uh, as the day of Pentecost sort of reminds us of? And so that last great festival, uh, and the festival half of the church here, is Pentecost. And after Pentecost, we move on into the week that is lived out in the name of the Holy Trinity. Remember, the very last festival of the church here is Trinity Sunday. And yet, I think that that Trinity Sunday, as a reminder of our baptism, is a wonderful way to understand the next six days of the week. Just as you have all of those Sundays after Trinity in the, in the one-year lectionary, and really that's perhaps the biggest thing I don't like about using the three-year lectionary, is that it always says such and such Sunday after Pentecost, but it leaves off Trinity Sunday. We live our daily life in the triune name. We live our daily life in baptism and in that name given us in our baptism. Now, certainly Pentecost is the great day in which God gave birth, if you will, to the New Testament church very visibly as 3,000 souls were added unto the church through baptism. Repent and be baptized, every one of you. And yet, isn't baptism always in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit? So we can understand that benediction as carrying us out as Pentecost blessing does, and carrying the life of the church right out into the world for the next six days, those six days which are going to be governed by, in a sense, our triune name in that last festival of the church year. So notice, as we summarize all of this, notice how every divine service, we are carried right through the church year, right through the life of Christ, and every week we are echoing back these timeless realities to cherish. You know, whenever somebody says, hey, what did I miss this Sunday? Boy, that's a question that perhaps people should think about before asking. What did you miss? You miss Christ serving his people. You miss the opportunity to, again, echo back this great reality in which we live. This sort of, you know, we're, we're almost in this extended last day or this last time, these last days awaiting Christ's return. And yet every single one of these days is sort of defined by this great reality that we simply dwell with Christ in the safety that is the churches in anticipation of that last day. And so the divine service, the liturgical life of the Lutheran confession, is such a beautiful way to understand the richness of the small catechism as it teaches us to cherish all of these things, not only as we are receiving them on Sunday morning, but then to get to live them. It's our joy to live them throughout each and every day of our life. Absolutely. What a beautiful image and tool for us to understand the catechetical life of the Christian as lived out in our worship and our Christian life throughout the liturgy, but then also the church year, and then in our Christian daily life as well. Just thank you so much, Pastor Bestel, for serving as our catechist for these last 27 weeks in this Catechized Life series. We have certainly appreciated your teaching and catechesis lessons here for us. And as we wrap up this series then on the Catechized Life in this series of Catechesis Lessons, 
Next week, we'll have Chaplain Sean Denzer, the Director of Worship for the Lutheran Church Missouri Senate. He'll be back on to give us a little bit of history and background of the Saxon Visitation articles that led to the writing of the Catechism. We'll tag that on here as a connection with this series that we've done. So please join us for that. Thank you so much for stopping by today, dear listener. And until next time, keep confessing, church.